opportunities that we have. Lord, we do pray for this trip, Lord. That pray that a whole church goes, Lord, that it would just be a time of, of uh, um, real life, practical application. So, Lord, we pray for your provision for all of that. And we look forward to it uh, right now as we study your word. Give us some more insights into uh, just who you are and your goodness to us. And may it be applicable to our lives and enrich our walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 12 and we'll read through 25. Now when he heard that John the Baptist, or John, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned. For from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now Decapolis was where he told the, the, the demon-possessed man, go back and tell your friends um, and your family what, that God has had mercy on you. So just for context there. And also just a side note here, um, when we talk about demon possession, the, God's word notates here that not everything is demon possession, right? There's epileptics, there's paralyzed, um, and he healed them, not just those who were. So we have to be really, we don't want to make a definitive statement that, well, every single mental illness, every single para- paralyzed person, every single epileptic is a demon possession. It's not necessarily. Um, and so, oh, hello. And so we want to be careful that we don't do that. So um, why was John the Baptist arrested? So let's look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And we'll begin in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. He took Philip's wife from him. Okay, he took his sister-in-law from him. And John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him because she's like, well, whatever. I wanted to be with him. He's Herod. Anyway, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. 
But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. She did not dance modestly. Let me just put it that way. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She had moves, okay? And she went out and said to her mother, now this is Herodias she's talking to, for what should I ask? Herodias was the wife of Philip that that Herod took. And she said, the head of John the Baptist, because she was part and parcel to the sin that, that, that Herod was doing, and she didn't want John the Baptist alive. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked him, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He cared about what other people thought of him, right? Hey, I said this in front of them. I can't, uh, you know, who am I? And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and they laid it in the tomb. Okay, so, so Jesus hears here in Matthew that, that John had been arrested. This is before the beheading, but we need to know why he was arrested. He was arrested because he was telling Herod, hey, you shouldn't have taken Herodias. That is Philip's wife, not yours. But because you're the king, you think you can do whatever you want. And so he was calling him out on his sin. And so, well, I'll put you in prison, but I'm not going to put, I, I respect you. I, I, I fear you, actually. He feared him a little bit. In John 3, verse 30, let's turn over there. And we see something interesting that's important for us to know. John 3, verse 30, we have the, or the, the John the baptizer here um, saying, uh, well, let's go to, to 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He's talking about Jesus, where he, we rejoice greatly. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete because I've heard the voice of Jesus. Jesus, come on the scene. Behold, the Lamb of God. He says, he must increase but I must decrease. Well, okay. Why, one thing we have to understand is John knew, hey, once Jesus comes on the scene, my ministry is done. And so I need to get, go back into the shadows here. I need, to, I need to pull back and make sure that Jesus comes on the scene. Well, I don't think that maybe John thought, maybe I'm going to go get beheaded. But really, this is fulfillment of what he said. I have to decrease. So he gets put in prison and he gets beheaded. And some of this, when he was in prison, um, on a side note, he sent his disciples to actually, some people say um, that he was wondering if Jesus really was the one because now he was in prison. But really, when we look at it, he sent his, John sent his disciples to go ask Jesus if he was the one. And it was really so that the disciples could be moved from being John's disciple and transferred over to being the Messiah, Jesus' disciple. And so Jesus did some wonders and some miracles. He goes, go tell John what you've seen, right? And so John was able to have that conversation with him, I'm sure. This is what I told you guys. See, he's the one. Um, and then he's beheaded. So of course, they're going to take care of John's body. But then most people believe that the disciples of John the Baptist then followed Jesus. So there's that. So John goes um, on to this background again that, that 
he had to go into the background so that Jesus would come to the foreground. There, he did not want the ministry to comp- compete. It's a great thing for us in our lives to go, do, am I drawing people to me or am I drawing them to Jesus? And, and if, you know, there is a time where people do look to, to you or to others, especially those of us that are in pastoral ministry, they look to you. But the reality is we all need to understand that, that God uses uh, those people as vessels, as tools to give you a better picture of Jesus, to give you a greater understanding of who God is. And so a lot of times when we see these big ministries have fallings and these failings is because these pastors, these leaders have, have taken on almost the Jesus complex and God won't be mocked. So it doesn't happen very often. We're going through a book with Lake and, and Matt right now called Overcoming the Dark Side of Leadership. And it's looking at a lot of these, these big uh, mega church uh, ministry leaders and the side of them that only very few saw that they didn't control. And, and then it came out and, they, uh, it, and it ruined the ministry. And, and, and a lot of people were hurt because of it. So you never look to man. You're thankful for man if it helps you in your walk, but you never realize that that's the end. Um, you, you know, you've got to see Jesus more clearly. So we see here in Matthew chapter 4, this idea of the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Um, so uh, a little bit of background. Well, first, let's go to Isaiah chapter 8. And then I'll give you background. Because we've got to get a little history oriented. Sorry about that to understand this a little bit. I'm not really sorry about that. It just... Isaiah 8. Beginning in, in verse 22. Isaiah 8, 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Or Naphtali, however you want to say it. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse, 20, or verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shine. Now again, remember, Matthew is trying to help the Jewish mind understand that Jesus is the Messiah. So we need to understand a little bit of, of where Zebulun and Naphtali or Naphtali come into play. Um, and so we have to go through a little bit of history. So in 920 BC, going way back, um, the, the, the kingdom was divided. You had two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin. Okay, Judah and Benjamin had as their capital city, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom was also, was also called just Judah for a while. And the Jerusalem again was that main city. And then the other 10 tribes were considered the northern kingdom who called themselves Israel. And in that northern kingdom, one of the, or two of the tribes were Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay, Zebulun and Naphtali. And then the northern kingdom, again, called themselves Israel, but they had two main cities that they considered their capital, and one of them might sound interesting to you, but there was Shechem and Samaria. 
So Samaria should ring a bell. Oh, Samaritans came from there, which means there was something happening in Samaria. We'll talk about that in a minute. In 721 BC, so fast forward 199 years, basically, Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel came. So you have these 10 tribes and that were considered the northern kingdom, and Assyria came and pretty much wiped them out. And the way that they would come in, and the whole idea of, of assimilation, um, which Israel is the only, only, only people group that has maintained identity that has been, even after they've been conquered. So that's just something to keep in mind. Um, so the northern kingdom comes in, and the first two tribes that were deported, which is what you would do, you would deport them to other lands to assimilate them, were Zebulun and Naphtali, the first two that were deported. Um, and so this is what Isaiah is talking about. They were cast into outer darkness. They were thrown into this assimilation. And the area of Capernaum, where Jesus is setting up his ministry headquarters, so to speak, is where this outer darkness, Zebulun and Naphtali, were, had been sent to, to be assimilated into other countries. So now we have the, something that we need to understand is they, in the mind of the Jews, those people were outcasts now. Remember, Samaritans were half Gentile and half Jew, were looked down on actually worse than a Gentile because they were intermingled with the Gentiles, tainting the Jewish line. They would rather you be a full-on Gentile than to be a Jew and a Gentile. That's why they didn't want to when, when the woman was at the well and they had to go into Sychar. That's where all it was. It was a Samaritan town. And they're like, we don't want to go in here and stay. We're not going to stay here. We want to get our stuff and we want to move on. But yet here is Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman of all things, right? And so he, we need, we need to see something. Jesus set up kind of his ministry headquarters, so to speak, in the place that was cast off and considered in Isaiah out of darkness. But what did Isaiah say? He said the same thing that's quoted by Matthew here, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And so way back, Isaiah is saying, guess what? The light's going to come to you guys who are cast off. So to the Jewish mind, this would have been mind-blowing if they, if they were willing to put it together. That God saw fit to exalt those who were outcast. And I think it's important for us to understand something. Jesus goes to the outcast first. If you look at it, he says, well, let's look at Mark 2.17 because I'm probably going to quote it right here before I misquote it. Mark 2 verse 17. Jesus is being accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners by the Pharisees. How dare he? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So it makes sense that Jesus went to those who needed him the most, who felt the least worthy of a Messiah. And he went to the place of Capernaum. So Jesus' message uh, is the same words, though. So anyway, I just want us to understand that. And that's some of the challenge we have. Ooh, that's so loud. In the church, no, it's great. actually the vibration. Yeah, no, I know. It, it's, it's, we feel it everywhere. It's wonderful. Uh, but that's something that we need to remember 
Um, it's our tendency in the church to feel righteous and want to hang around with everyone who's righteous. And when we see people who are outcast or not like us, even though we used to be like them, which is so weird, right? We kind of go, eh, you know, and it's like, oh, I don't want to talk to him. Well, wait a second. That's who Jesus was. If you look at Jesus was counted a sinner, a glutton, a drunkard. I mean, that, that's what the Pharisees saw him. And they said, oh, because he hung out with actually people who liked him, who wanted to hang out with him, because the people who rejected him didn't like his message because he gave the true heart of God and not the heart of man's rules. And so there was this big, there was this big difference. We live in a very target-rich environment when it comes to, to the gospel of grace. Um, with those who, uh, like, I, I, re- I resonate with LDS people very well. Because I was raised very, what again, Jesus was God. Jesus is the only way. You have to be forgiven your sins. Great. But very legalistic. How you act is actually more important at times. I mean, I don't think it was really said that way, but that's how it felt. Um, I, you, you know, it felt you got to clean the, ke- the fish before you can catch them. You got to act all the right ways. That's proof that you're this. And so when I'm dealing with people who are coming out of the LDS religion, I understand. And so I'm able to, yeah, I get that. It's if you do this, if you do that, if you do that, it, you know, then you're okay. And, and so you have those moments where you feel like you're okay, and then you realize, oh, no, I have to do more. Um, and so this was the problem that the Pharisees were having. And this is why they were like, we're not looking for him to come from Capernaum. That's, that's, that's Zebulun and Naphtali. Those people are half-breeds. We don't even want to deal with them. But Jesus said, yeah, but that's who I came. That's who I came for. You guys, you guys don't think you need me. <laughs> They didn't feel like they needed mercy like we talked about this morning. They didn't feel like that. So then we see Jesus come on the scene and we see the same message. In verse 17 of of Matthew chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, John the Baptist said this and he pointed to Jesus, behold the lamb. Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, I am the king of the kingdom. Uh, It's literally at hand. It's really there. And I think sometimes we forget or we don't recognize that Jesus is dwelling within us. His kingdom is actually present within us. Has it been fulfilled yet here on earth? No, but we look forward to the day that it will. But we do represent his kingdom, something we talked about this afternoon. We're his ambassadors, right? As an ambassador is one who speaks on behalf of him who sent that person. Jesus sent us as ambassadors. So we get to speak the things of the kingdom to other people as if God were speaking to them. Pressure, right? But it's not great pressure. Hey, God's been good to me. (laughs) He's a good God. He's wonderful. He's forgiving. He loves you where you're at. He doesn't have these great expectations of you that you think religion has. He doesn't have that. It's not about religion. I religiously brush my teeth, just so you know. I'm very religious at that. More religious since I got married. But, so see, we need help. Um, we, you know, I'm like, man, look at how long she's doing that. Maybe I should brush mine longer. You know, so anyway, um, I'm just saying. But with greater meaning, he comes. So Jesus, again, is that fulfillment. Um, and so Mark, or Matthew chapter 4, 18 through 22, we read. And we see this idea of the authority of Jesus. And it's interesting to me because, you know, it's not like, um, it's not like these disciples that he called were unhappy. It's not like they didn't, uh, you know, like, oh, great, an option. I don't have to be a fisherman anymore. It wasn't that. It was the authority of God speaking to them. 
Come follow me. Now, some scholars have fun time thinking, and if you really are bored, you can think about this. Well, are we only recording the ones that responded? How many people did Jesus call before they actually followed him? It doesn't say that, so let's not even talk about it. We know that he called these men. They, they dropped everything. Their identity was changed. We need to understand that. When we, when we receive the call of God upon our lives, receive the forgiveness of sins, our identity is changed. We're no longer this person who did this. We're now a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. And it doesn't mean that you have to stop your job and just go out and follow him and, and, and live off the land. It's a little different than this moment in time, but the principle is the same. You are following Jesus now. I was going this way. I responded to his voice, and now I'm going this way with him. Uh, but our identity has changed. And I think all of us who have, who have received the forgiveness of sins over time realize that our identity is actually way different than it used to be. Um, I, I just don't think the way that I used to. Uh, you know, sometimes it comes up. <laughs> but, but I just don't think the way that I used to. I don't find joy and pleasure in the same things that I used to. Um, uh, and so you just see, you know, some of it's age, I'm sure. But some of it is you just go, you know, uh, that's not, uh, one of the best examples of this that I, that I can think of. Um, and I don't want to get into the debate about homosexuality, but this is good for the story. But, uh, but there's a gal that was, uh, I was interviewing for a teacher at the, at the private school in New Mexico. Beautiful gal. Had great uh, husband and, and three kids. And three kids were going to be in school. We were interviewing for a teacher. And one of the things that we would ask them is their testimony. And so she says, well, I was a lesbian. And I mean, I'm glad I think I'm good at poker. I don't, I don't play poker, so I don't know. But, but I was like, you know, hard to believe because, you know, she's this woman has teenage kids and married for years. And, um, and so then, you know, she received Christ. And, and uh, so that was kind of her story. I didn't hear much else. And so later I went back to her and I said, you know, so help me understand this. Um, because the problem we have in the church a lot of times is when there's someone who has these outward sins that we see or these ways that we know aren't necessarily the way God has intended, we expect, like the drunkard or the person who's addicted to pornography or whatever, as soon as they receive Christ, they can't do that. You should just stop doing that. Instead of going, wait a second, let's just walk alongside them, point them to Jesus and, and let God worry about all of it because it's not my place. Um, I want them to know Jesus and trust Jesus for it because there might be other things that God's dealing with that are way worse than what I see. So anyway, I went and asked her, I said, you know, did, did the church tell you you had to stop, you had to do this? And she go, and I was really surprised. She goes, no. She goes, I, I went back to my lifestyle. She goes, but then after about three, three and a half weeks, I just realized it's not who I am anymore. Um, no one told her she couldn't be that. It's just God had changed her. Now, that doesn't happen that way with everybody. I've met people who are alcoholics, and the moment they come to Jesus Christ, um, they're sober like that. And I've met alcoholics who the rest of their life, they're struggling and struggling and struggling. But you point them to Jesus. You point them to Jesus, and you never, you never negate the work that God has done in their lives just because they're struggling with something. We're all struggling with something, just so you know. <laughs> so don't, don't feel like that that's a problem. So, but there's a new identity is the point. And so we need to help people and ourselves go, wait a second, I'm no longer identified by my darkness. I'm no longer identified by someone who was dead. I am now identified by someone who's alive in Christ. It doesn't mean that this flesh that is condemned 
still doesn't struggle, but that's not who I am. So what's the phrase? Help me out. Your present circumstances don't define who you are is kind of the thing. Or your past sins don't define who you are. Or those things that you struggle with. When you're in Christ, that doesn't define who you are. Who defines who you are is Jesus. So Jesus calls these fishermen and says, I want to change who you are. And we see on the boat, um, when they have the great catch, when he calls Peter, and Peter says, from now on, you're going to be a fisher of men, right? As he changes his, his dynamic. He, he, you know, he was this fisherman. Now he's going to be a fisher of men. No longer. Now, again, we see what does Peter do after the crucifixion and the burial? I guess I'll go fishing. That's what I know how to do. Same thing with us. When we don't feel the presence of the Lord or we feel like disappointed, we just go back to who we used to be. But praise God, he doesn't leave us there and he meets us with breakfast. No, that's what he did with Peter. So anyway, um, so we and see the fish. And yeah, I know. Well, okay. I will <laughs> warn you. When we go to Israel, fish will be offered every, bre- every breakfast. Good. Uh, but there's, there's fruit and granola and yogurt and eggs and date honey date honey is if you've never had date honey oh it's better than bee honey anyway so it's more um it's more like a syrup anyway so but but you see the call of jesus can require though and i want us to to actually think about this sometimes it does require us that we are to leave that which is familiar and um, now I would never tell somebody you can't hang out with your family now, <laughs> you know, but sometimes it means like, I mean, I would say, okay, between you and I, this is, oh, it's being recorded, but, but if some, <laughs> if someone's a stripper and they get saved, I'd probably be like, you know, it's probably not the best profession anymore. It's probably, you, you know, but again, I'd have to have that relationship with them to where I'd be like, probably not a good idea. If they're a drug dealer, Probably not a good idea. If you've really been saved, you're, you're going to have to go. Hey, okay, let's 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 stop this. But mo- go ahead. Well, I was just going to say there are areas within the Word of God that does. Is it James that says if you were a thief? No, it's know, Paul. Paul says, turn if you were stealing, quit stealing. But, you know. Turn from that and yeah. work with your hands. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, mean, I think so, that there's... there's that doesn't mean... That doesn't mean... That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean be sleight of hand. Or, right. you know? <laughs> but, but I think that, 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 again, there is this change, though. And to the Jewish mind, we need to understand something. When the church started, Jews who converted to Christianity, many of them did lose their homes. Many of them did get fired from their jobs. That's why you see in Acts 2 that they were selling everything and they were sharing it because some people did. But you also know that there was a time where a lot of them would worship on, you know, Saturday on on the Sabbath day with the Jewish rituals and do with it. And then on church, they go to church on Sunday because they were living as God was, was moving in their lives. They were, they were still living a little bit in the identity of who they were as a Jew as they worked and God worked with them. And there came a point where they're like, okay, I'm no longer a, a Jew anymore. I mean, I'm Jewish, but my, my, my faith is in Christ and Christ alone. And so it wasn't like everyone, ha- you have to be careful. Well, if they left everything, I have to leave everything. Well, okay, that's not what God's saying. God is saying, though, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before you, that, that there's only one God, right? And, and so he's everything. And so when we receive the forgiveness of Jesus and we say, I want you to be Lord of my life, which is a, a thing we don't practice too much, talking about being Lord of your life means he has rule over my life. 
What he says goes. Um, now, God's so loving and gracious and faithful. Um, he's going to walk with you along the way. But there have been times in our lives where it was so we were so convinced and convicted of a direction that we needed to go that we tried not to, but we didn't. Uh, fostering kids was one of those. We didn't want to foster kids, but it was on our heart to help our community. It was on our heart with the house that we had to, to, to not leave it empty. And, you know, we wanted, I wanted a music studio. She wanted an art studio. And God said, you guys are being selfish. Um, and so we're like, okay. Um, and we didn't want to foster kids, but we had to obey God. And, and we did foster kids. And, and it was not easy. If you want to know who you really are as a person and how great a sinner you are, foster kids. Okay, so um, <laughs> that's a big pitch sell for that. No. <laughs> but, but, I mean, um, we won't get into that story today. But it does, it does mean, it's a long story, but it does mean that, that there's going to be times where you're like, mm, this doesn't make total sense to me, Lord, but I need to do it. Um, and so, and, and we prayed about it. And I went to the pastors at the church we were at because I was one of the pastors. Hey, we're thinking we should do this. Hoping, hoping one of them would say, no, don't do that. And I could go, hey, Laura, look, uh, you know, good counsel. And, and they all said, well, let's pray for you. And then one of them pulled me aside afterwards and said, you know, for you not to go forward with this would be sin. Oh, no. And he was right. So anyway, <laughs> but, but again, it means a radical change. When you follow Jesus, you're just gonna, it's going to change things. And then in verse 23 through 25, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. Now, some of the reasons he did all these healings were twofold. Number one was to prove he was God and he had authority over everything. Secondly, was so his fame would spread. There, there needed to be something that, that, that caused enough disruption to get him crucified. And I know that sounds horrible, <laughs> but that's really what was happening here. His fame had to grow to the point to where the Pharisees were willing to even get more in bed with, with Rome and use them to crucify him because they were being threatened by power. And, he, and they're like, oh, he says he's king. And now that threatened Roman power. Um, and, so, and so his fame grew. And they brought him the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, not all demons. Uh, they were oppressed by demons. They were, but there were epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. So a couple things about just really quickly about the authority of Jesus and that the kingdom of God is truly present with Christ. So number one, there's power and authority. Come follow me. The demons uh, were subject to him. Sickness uh, were subject to him. Diseases were subject to him. Um, he had authority over all of that. And we see that throughout the scriptures. He calms the seas in an instant. Uh, he does all these things. Uh, he, he says, text, tells people, oh, because of your faith, that happened. <laughs> and then they go, and then the, the centurion goes back, at what hour did, was my servant healed? It was at this hour. Oh, the very moment that Jesus said that he was healed. You know, so you see these things that Jesus has power and authority. Second, he has dominion. And dominion is dominance. I mean, dominion is something that is like, I, I am in charge of this domain. Um, and we need to understand that, that we as those who have Jesus living within us, 
he has dominion over us. Um, and we don't like that, as, especially as Western American Christians. We don't like that because we want to live however we want and have a little Jesus too. Um, not this group here, because you're here tonight, so there you go. But, but that's what we battle. Our flesh does not, does not want to be subject to God. Because Jesus said you need to deny your flesh if you're going to follow me. And the reality is all of us, I think, as we mature in Christ, will realize, yeah, there's some great pleasures in the flesh, but they always leave me wanting. I never feel, uh, you can eat a really big meal and it's the best thing, but then you feel stuffed afterwards. And then you're like, and then it's amazing, like within three hours, you're thinking about what you're going to eat again. Even in that moment, you're like, I don't ever want to eat anymore, you know, pumpkin pie. No. So, um, so I think that, that we realize that the pleasures of the flesh are fleeting. There's great pleasures in this world. Don't get me wrong. But Jesus has dominion over not only us, but this world. Um, also, Jesus brings perfection and wholeness. And, and I think we see that here. Um, and so when we look at one another who are in Christ, you're perfect and you're whole in Christ. And you're God's work of art. In, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says you're his workmanship, the word is poema, which could be transferred or, or transcribed as poem or masterpiece. So it helps us when we look at one another, and I have to remind myself and listen to the Holy Spirit when I'm struggling with other believers, believe it or not, I do sometimes. And God says, that's my masterpiece. Why are you mocking my masterpiece? You know, why are you? And it's like, oh, you know, but, but okay, in the flesh, they don't feel like that sometimes. But in God's eyes, this is his masterpiece. This is his pride and joy. And so we need to remember that's what Jesus does. He brings perfection. He brings wholeness. He also brings hope. I mean, why did he get the crowds? Uh, because he brought a great light to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles who were told they had no part in what God was doing, that God was not for them. And Jesus is actually saying, yeah, he is. He actually loves you. He actually desires to be with you. And that's something that, that really recently has, has come to my attention, that God just doesn't love me, but he likes me. I would accept God as loving me. Easy for me to, okay, he loves me. But man, I'm just kind of a wishy-washy person. My mind goes all over the place. I have great faith sometimes and then I doubt. And I have these things that I want to consume upon myself, but I really want to live for the Lord and those two things never. How, but, but yet God's like, no, I like you too. I actually want to hang out with you. I want to be with you. And, and that's astounding to me. And I'm still growing in that because it's still hard for me to believe that he actually wants to, to be with me. Um, and, and I want to encourage you all. He wants to be with you. He likes to hang out with you. He chose actually to reside within you. If he didn't like you, I mean, come on now. And talk about a DIY fixer-upper. There you go, right? He's, he's, throwing, he's throwing in there and he's taking care of business. And then lastly, he provides freedom. Freedom is really important because every religious system and every flesh man-made system does not give you freedom. What are we struggling with even in our country today is our freedoms, right? And the challenge is that even sometimes whatever system you set up, someone's freedom, in quotations, is going to be violated. Somebody is going to feel like, well, that's not free enough. You know, um, I'm trying to think of, Butch was telling me about this guy, you guys would know, he was over somewhere, living off the land, and, and, the, and, a, and he killed a guy, game warden guy. <sighs> but it was a guy who wasn't bothering anybody and he was living off land, but he was killing animals and eating them. They went, oh man, it's a national story. And they made a movie about him. And anyway, 
But, but he was like, you know, I'm not bothering anybody. Uh, but, but his freedom still felt violated because they, they were trying to cite him for killing things and trapping things he wasn't supposed to. Um, and so it ended up in a gunfight. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, and then he escaped. Anyway, found in the Southern California. It's a wild story. I have to look him up again. But if I had the name, you guys would go, oh, yeah. But, you know, that's how that goes with me. But there's freedom in Christ. Uh, see, sin binds us. The effects of sins are really paralyzing um, when we look at it. It's like I'm bound to, and you, and you look at someone who really wrestles with what we call life-dominating sins, um, those that are, um, you, you know, addictions, and you just see that they're bound to that. And I used to be really harsh toward people who were uh, uh, addicts because I was like, well, just stop, just stop it. Um, and and. And as we fostered kids, again, back to that, I did some research on, on meth because that's why these kids were in the system. And it gave me a, a heart for these people who were literally bound to this. And then praying and just being frustrated and God says, well, then just stop overeating. And I'm like, okay, well, now I get it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, that hurt, Lord. Thank you very much. But, but okay, that, that helps me understand that we all have these things that, 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 we're, that we struggle with. And, but in Christ, those things are removed. And that's why we focus on who we are in Christ. And that's why we look at the fact that he is bringing freedom and hope. Next week, we dive into the Sermon on the Mount. Now, just a over, really quick teaser on that. The Sermon on the Mount was not necessarily all spoken at one point on the Mount. We believe that many times he spoke on this mountain and these were the themes that came out of, of the, the, the sermons that he gave in this place. Um, doesn't matter. It was recorded here all succinctly for us. And it's really showing us that we are no longer the same as we were. This is what it looks like now to be in Christ. Um, and then it also says, Woo, we need Jesus because we can't do this on our own because it's contrary to the flesh. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thanks for bringing us freedom, hope. Thanks you for just having the authority over our lives. Lord, we thank you for that. We need you. And it's great. We, we are so thankful that you provided. And uh, so, Lord, uh, we just uh, look to you. Thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen.